0: You are listening to Secret Handshake, the podcast covering the movies that help you identify your friends and maybe make a few more along the way. Coming up, spine number 30, 1997's Face Off, featuring Nick Cage, John Travolta, Joe Bob Briggs, Doves, Boat Chases, Golden Guns, Peaches, Plastic Surgery, Butterfly Knives, Gina Gershon, and Sex Sandwiches, Martin, yes, No More Drugs for that man. Secret handshake. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining me as always is Martin Carlson. Martin, you ready for me to cut your face off? Always. I want you to take my face off. You want me to take your face off? Yes. So we decided to do this episode a while ago. It was the 25th anniversary, this summer of the summer of 1997, which for me is one of the most formative. Movie going experiences of my whole life because Con Air and Face Off came out like within weeks of each other. And I remember buying more tickets for Contact than anything else (laughs) and sneaking in to see both these. Now, I think I saw Face Off five times in the movie theater. I was 14, by the way. I, I saw Face Off like five times I saw Con Air probably like four and both of these movies like completely changed my life. Now at almost 40, they hit a little different one better than the other. But I wanted to know, like when did you first come to like face off and Connor, did you see him in the movie theater too? Was this another like big brother experience? Kind of like bad boys. This is a dad experience. So All me, right. me and big D Carlson, um, so please don't refer to him as big D Carlson ever again. I'd literally call him big D. I don't call him dead. Okay. Um, but it's just the big D part. That's I, I know. Upsetting. You
1: know, I find it kind of ironic, but that's just what I've always called him. Um, but I saw him both in the theater. Um, Conair in my mind, cause I didn't quite know how films worked yet. I remember seeing the Jerry Bruckheimer um, logo uh, before the trailer. I'm like, Oh, this is the guy who made the rock. Producer, yes, not director. But in my mind, for a long time, I was like, oh, Michael Bay made Con Air. And obviously, we already did a Michael Bay episode, which there are a lot of similarities the way he shows action in the way Simon West does and Dominic Cena. But I. Well, and they both come from propaganda. Too. Yeah, exactly. So they come from the same, you know, uh, doing music videos in, in the same place. And, you know, Simon West doing the Never Gonna Give You Up video for Rick Astley. Um, and. I remember this was this was an era, though. Like, 97 was a, a formative one for me. Like, 96, 97, and 98 were just at that kind of, like, sweet spot of, like, I'm 12 to 14 years old. My dad will take me to any action movie. And this summer, I was pumped for Con Air. But face-off, I was beside myself with excitement because I would become a ridiculous John Woo fan. We've talked about this, obviously, with one of our first episodes um, for Hard Target, I was obsessed with him from like night, basically all of middle school. I had discovered him. I rented Hard Boiled. It changed the way I looked at action movies. And then when I found out this was coming out, my, my dad had taken me also to see the year before to see Broken Arrow. I could not wait. And when I saw this in the theater, I mean, this was the ultimate, not to jump the gun, but face melter. I mean, I was just changed. Um, and I remember. Um, I was Lutheran and we would do confirmation, right? And so, uh, or you were basically eighth grade and you <laughs> renew your vows, so to speak. And um, I had a party at my house and one kid from church came and the rest of the kids came from my friends from school who didn't know what confirmation was. My best buddy, Jeff, gave me face off on VHS for my confirmation. and God bless you, Jeff. Jeff Kissel, wherever you are, thank you. And I watched this movie This VHS till it broke. This was like speed for me. The movie Speed, um, Batman,
0: Tim Burton's Batman. Also like speed. I mean, it does (laughs) replicate the same feeling when you watch it at 14 years old. This this episode, I think, reminds
1: me of us talking about Blade, where Face Off is that level of how important one movie was to like, before it came out, when it came out, and then after it came out. It just defined like that era of my life.
0: Well, and to your point too, like so you had hard target, which we experienced on VHS. And I was the same way that you were like, we talked about in our previous episode is that it was like, you saw that and you were not just instantly a JCVD fan, but you were like, who is this fucking John Woo guy and whatever. And it was also during the period where like entertainment weekly was delivered to your mailbox. And you could like before the internet, before message boards, before chud.com, before, talkbacks, any of that, like entertainment weekly and Premiere magazine was the other one yep. too. And empire had a good shit too. empire. Yeah. But that was more British based more than anything. And it was so, expensive. Yeah. But well, that's what I mean. Like <laughs> yeah. I didn't get that as much as like, um, Premiere, like my parents actually got me an EW subscription from like 13 on. So to me, that was like the earliest version of like getting online or on Twitter every day and being like, what fucking bullshit movie knows is hitting me and like destroying my brain now. Only then it was more interesting because you would hear about like, here's this guy from Hong Kong who came over, who made these wild action movies that may or may not be good, you know, the big thing with hard target that we talked about was that it was NC 17. So it was like, and it had to be cut down to R and you're like, Oh my God, this guy's so fucking extreme that like he broke all the rules in America. And then you saw hard target. You're like, this is awesome. I don't really get like the, the NC 17 thing, but whatever. But then you sought out all the stuff in the video store, like you said, but then, you know, you had that and then you had the rock which I know for you, bad boys played a bigger part, but I wasn't a huge bad boys fan, but the The rock rock, honestly was kind of equal. Yeah. The the rock for me was so formative. And when you talk about like Michael Bay and Bruckheimer and then con air, con air very much feels like them looking at the rock and being like, how do we do that again? Mm -hmm. How do we like just set up the same humor, the same violence, the same high concept, like high concept. Like what if a bunch of prisoners instead of like, You know, Alcatraz, how everybody wants to break out? This is about people breaking in. This is literally about, like, you know all those airplane movies from the fucking 70s where, like, they're going down? What if the convicts hijacked it this time? You're like, oh, shit. Like, there's a real Don Simpson energy to this film that's hard to get over the entire time. But, like, yeah, I'm with you to where, like, I saw Face Off at 14, and, like, my brain was forever changed because I was the kid who, like had Akira on VHS and like watched it 8 million times and like would seek out the same things when I would go to the video store and just empty the canon films like section and seeing this was just kind of like oh wait these international directors can come to big studios and make movies on this level and still kind of it was almost like my first crash course in auteurism and being mm. like they can come here and they can make these massive like budgeted movies with big movie stars that I recognize like Nick Cage and John Travolta, but they can also retain the things that I'd sought out and found in the Hong Kong movies, like on VHS. Like that was a weird game changer to me too, because it almost was like, again, my first, lessons in director theory and how like they're the author
1: of the movie itself. Well, it's, I think I mentioned this when we talked about hard target, but when I first got into John Woo, it was also because of, of replacement killers. And I, in my mind, I was more star based. And so like, Oh, the double handed, you know, gunfights were Chow Young fat, not John Woo. And I found that double VHS set at Best Buy of the killer and hard boiled. And I was like, Oh, this is a director whose style is that very also I think John Woo was one of my also first auteurist lessons. I think also what I was thinking about just while watching these movies in prep for the podcast was every summer was like Christmas morning because you especially pre-internet, you also weren't quite sure what was coming out besides entertainment weekly. There was a sense and not every and most things weren't IP. So now it's like we because of the internet, because of also just like IP cinema and Marvel and DC and star Wars, we're pretty sure for years out what our summers going to look like. And now it's back in 96 and 97, 98. I remember it hit like April and you start watching, you watch the super bowl and see a trailer. Like I remember seeing the mummy trailer during the super bowl. And I was like, what the fuck is that? You know, or other or fifth element, same thing was during the super bowl. And I remember seeing the trailer there and I was like, wait, what's that movie? And it was just the sense of surprise. And every summer was just these crazy balls to the wall, American action films for
0: like a good four years, of the nineties, I feel like. Well, and it was also during the time when we were also like discovering Luc Basson to bring up like yeah. the fifth element and movies like that to where also like, again, these yeah. international dudes were coming to America to make their own style of movies and actually being given that Hollywood kind of budget behind them but i remember seeing face off in rehoboth beach delaware at some random movie theater like 10 miles up the road and just being completely blown away by the fact that like you could inject this level of violence into a, a an american hollywood like kind of mainstream movie cuz even watching it now at almost 40 like this is still like you can't believe that something both this high concept and this violent actually exists and ridiculous. I mean, yeah. just
1: full on. I remember seeing it with my dad because my dad was like a great sport. I mean, he took me to everything. And I think my mom actually came with us to this one, too. And my dad was always respectful. And like he would laugh after the fact, but he like let me enjoy my movie, you know, and. Face Off is one of those movies that at that time, I thought this was high art. And in the sense of like, do you know what I'm talking about? Of like, I thought this was like deep, really deep cinema of, oh my God, like the way that he touches their face. And it's like the face and his daughter is like hiding from who she is, the way she, and when you're 13, that's about as deep as you can go, you know? And so for me, this hit me at that moment. But watching it now when I'm fucking 38, almost 39 years old, I like it just as much because it's operatic. There's no sense of irony in this movie. It is straight up. And that's what I like about John Woo. I rewatched The Killer this afternoon getting prepped. And I love that he
0: his stuff is like, there's never a wink. It's just straight up. I'll push back against that a little bit, not in terms of like the dramatics of the film itself, because I, I agree, I think it's incredibly sincere, it's downright Cirquean at times I with thought its the same, melodrama, yeah, like, in the way that it wants to convey those emotions, both, both, like, positively and negatively, because, like, yeah, like you were saying, as a 14-year-old kid, I thought the whole, like, face-touching thing and and... Like the Dominic Swain character and stuff was like really like, oh, you're you're going for it and like you're getting to like deep emotions. And again, now almost 40, I watch it and I go, we probably could have done without the face touching at least because Dominic Swain, you're forever in my heart because you ignited a few things in me, let's say. (laughs) Um, But the face touching is the one element of it to where I'm like. Like, did nobody else comment and be like, yo, it's real fucking... Like, you know at the work picnics for Sean Archer, like, someone behind the scenes was like, they do this fucking thing where they, like, touch each other's faces and it's real weird. Just roll with it and ignore it. Like, it's fine. It's like your dad prepping to meet, like, his really weird friend from college. But, like... (laughs) Like, that's what I was thinking while I was watching this. But at the same time, I do think this movie has a bit of self-awareness in terms of the movie stardom because one of the great parts of it is Travolta and Cage more or less imitating each other. Yes, And Woo really leans into it at times to where like Travolta is doing a Nick Cage freak out and, like cage is is taking on who I think is much better of the two is taking on the mannerisms of Travolta and like playing that kind of mumbly like post brando like like sensitive guy thing that Travolta's really good at frankly yeah. but he he amps it up to almost like parody to where I I did want to ask you this question is that to me it, this almost completely qualifies under the Sontagian definition of camp. Yeah. Of like how it's hyper stylized. It's all artifice. It's all visceral. And it is sort of tongue in cheek. I don't think it it falls into kitsch, which in her original essay, she would talk about who will like kitsch was like completely self-aware, like playing almost like up to a bit to where this is more like, the unintentional camp to where like if I understand I don't like the people who think this movie's funny, but I understand the people who do because it's so amped up at every turn.
1: Yeah, I mean, I haven't read that article in so fucking long. That was like grad school days for me. But um I would I would completely agree that I mean what I like about this movie. And you're totally right. You were good to push back on me, where there is some self awareness in terms of specifically the movie star stuff, Um, and also just like the ridiculousness of the conceit. I mean, there's some there's some jokes in the script um, of, I mean, like the the joke where um, he's talking where uh, Travolta after he's turned into where he's Castro Troy is talking to Paul. The ridiculous, the, chin this line. ridiculous chin, like that. Like the, it
0: totally knows what it's doing. Yeah, I
1: and mean, the ultimate, if we have two movie stars who now are, I mean, both of them were. Blowing up very recently. I mean, that was like right not too far after Pulp Fiction. You're three years removed. Yeah, three years removed, and you're just a couple years, I mean, you're a year after The Rock when you we talked about him being discovered what, as an action star. Well, isn't
0: leaving Las Vegas ninety-four when he wins the Oscar? 94-95, yeah. So, like it's the same era of guys being reclaimed, and it actually is an interesting discussion to have in how they they treated their respective career paths because And we talked about this on the Michael Bay episode is that cage like zagged when everybody expected him to zig. Let's say to where like you win for a movie called like leaving Las Vegas playing an alcoholic who basically drinks himself to to death in one of the most depressing films ever committed to celluloid. You expect like that guy is going to show up. In, like, the next, like, Soderbergh thing or, like... Yeah, exactly, the next Oscar bait thing or whatever. And he didn't. He went and teamed up with Bruckheimer and Simpson and Michael Bay and made these big, bold, audacious action movies to where, like, he's the best part of all of them, I think. Like, Mm -hmm. The Rock, Face Off, Con Con Air, definitely. But, I mean, like, he's at least giving the most performance in all of them. And to me, the best performance because he, I don't know. Like, I think it's just an electricity that was running through Nick Cage's veins at this point as a performer to where like, he just picked up every script, saw the lines and then was like, I'm a fucking jazz musician. I play around it. Cause I, I believe it was David Lynch at wild, like during the wild at heart days, who actually referred to Nick Cage as a yeah. jazz musician and was like, "That's what he's doing. He's doing actorly jazz." Again, to me, this is him doing actorly jazz on like a big budget studio level. Yeah, we were talking. I think I texted you about this when I was watching Face Off, and you know,
1: you think about Travolta coming off of a Broken air with John Wu, and Travolta's the star of the movie. I mean, Christian between him and Christian Slater, one of them is pulling in.
0: Doing a bigger job and in doing more interesting things. Well, I mean, let's put it this way: there's a reason that Scream Two borrows his entry theme, Deacon's from, theme. Yeah, exactly from Broken Arrow. Like he's the guy in that movie. Yes, I remember I was watching Scream
1: Two in prep, and I was like, we were supposed like, yeah, this fucking, I love that theme. Um, It's incredible. Yeah, dom 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 dom. But then you have him kind of almost like big. He was big fish in a little pond, and he shows up in Face Off and. And Cage, I mean, he's bringing more. And I think specifically when I was texting about this that, yes, Travolta does, when he turns into Castro Troy, when he becomes Castro Troy, he is doing his kind of Nick Cage mannerisms. But like Cage, like you're talking about the jazz, but is also doing multiple, multiple layers because the part requires it. I just want to give him credit where credit is due. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. Like, Travolta is incredible in this movie. No, no, but I mean, I'm actually giving more credit to to Cage here, though, that you have multiple layers of he's Sean Archer. So it's Nick Cage playing John Travolta, but pretending to be Nick Cage. Like when he, especially when he was with Nick Cassavetes and when he's with um, Gina Gershon. And so you have this like multiple layers of acting, which is really actually hard to do. And
0: for, for a crazy action movie, he completely pulls it off. Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. But I think Travolta does the same thing in another scene, which I noticed this time around in my 40th viewing or whatever the fuck oh, this yeah. is. Like there's that great moment. Where uh Travolta playing Castro Troy, playing Sean Archer, sees his daughter, Dominique Swain, yes. pull into the driveway with Danny Masterson, who this is aged kind of interestingly is that you wonder if John Woo looked at Danny Masterson and was like, there's the perfect pedophile. I don't know about <laughs> yep. you, but like I see something weird in this dude, but he pulls the dude out of the car, beats the shit out of him. And then has more or less like a dad knows best monologue with Dominique Swain. But again, he zags instead of zigs where he gives her a butterfly knife at the end of it. And it's all about like, instead of being like, Oh, cause he even asked her, they play on the words. And like the script here is way better than it's really given credit for either. You got protection. Is that it, again, it's playing on words. There's a lot of innuendo and everything. He asks her, like, do you have protection? And she's like, condoms? He's like, no. And he whips out a butterfly knife. And woo does the slow-mo the sh- trademark <laughs> slow-mo shot of the butterfly knife, like opening and like just kind of, it's music to him. Like nobody, nobody, we should stress this, is better at admiring violence with a camera than John Woo has ever been. And weapons themselves. He gets, yeah, yeah, he gets the almost sexual appeal of both guns and knives in a way that nobody ever has who's made movies in in the history of cinema. And it's this great moment to where, like, Caster Troy shines through Sean Archer and might be a better dad than Sean Archer ever was to this character. And I just, I had never, again, I, I think it speaks to how good the fucking movie is, is that I had never in all my years of watching this film been like, oh shit, that, that scene fucking rules. Uh, it's, you're, you're totally right. And it's, I like, and it says, again, credit to the screenwriters
1: where also the, the people who wrote the mask, I didn't realize, which percent, yeah, well. and, and I love the mask. <laughs> I to be a lot. Um I no. do. I, the- I don't, I love Chuck Russell, I love the mask. But anyway, um, I think there's a lot. I think maybe what we're getting at is that you and I saw different depth and interesting things when we were younger and now we're seeing some stuff that we just didn't really pick up on being younger and also like, but it's like, no, that it's actually even better than I could have imagined. And, and you and I, and one of the things you've taught me with this, us, I talked about this before of us becoming friends and working on this podcast together. Is that I sometimes have said, Well, that's a bad movie. Like, I think I said about a Miami connection one time. And you're like, Well, slow down. Because in my mind, there was an assumption of if it's camp, then it's bad, but it's guilty pleasure. And this, I feel like, falls in that category, too, where I think it'd be very easy to laugh off the whole movie like you were getting at and consider it a guilty pleasure. But I think it deserves a lot more respect. I'm not saying it's like Gene, It's not fucking Shakespeare, but it is what it sets out to do. Um, and it's also like the action. This is some of the best action he ever directed. I mean, there's some great... The shootout in Nick Cassavetti's penthouse is one of the best things he's ever done. Like every, There's just papers everywhere. I love when he his squibs go off and papers just fly in the air, like shreds of confetti. Dude. i
0: I mean the opening 20 minutes oh of this God. movie go harder. Like the, the one thing that I wrote down on like a notepad that I stupidly didn't bring to this recording is that I was like, man, this movie might actually be one of the ultimate, like you didn't have to go that hard movies to where like you just watch the opening 20 minutes, the intro to fucking face off. And you're like, John Wu, you you could have just taken a knee and, like, directed this, like, because I like Broken Arrow, but I don't think anything in that really rises to <clears throat> the levels of insanity that Face Off achieves. But, like, and that was the the thought that I was having to where I was like, you didn't have to go this hard, but you did, and we're all the better for it. It's weird because the whole setup of the beginning of Face Off feels like the end
1: of Bad Boys it's in this like airplane hangar. There's or cars the midpoint on the, tenant or yeah. Yeah. You're on a tarmac. There's car, you know, and it, it felt like, well, I'm just going to start it there and then I'm going to go bigger. And and it does have Bruckheimer and Simpson kind of flourishes. It feels like it could be a Bruckheimer film, specifically the boat chase at the end feels like a Bruckheimer scene to me more than a, um, cause that's the
0: thing about, about woo. Um, no, really, no, the the boat chase at the end to me feels like it's transplanted in from, like, Hong Kong. Like, it doesn't exist. It shouldn't exist in an American film. Well, like, in, in the, the same Bronx way that, like, action. well, that and uh, we did uh, The Protector with Jackie Chan. Yeah. And you have that opening boat chase. Like, that was the thing that I kept thinking about with James Glickenhouse of, like, a guy who obviously sat there and like one of the producers sat there on face off. It was like, what if we just let this dude do what he does? And like, that's it. We just get the fuck out of the way. And it was the best decision ever. That's why it doesn't feel like Bruckheimer to me. It just feels like they were like, let him make a John Woo movie. Like let John Woo live son. That's
1: fair. Cause I, I mean, I remember, um, all the stories I heard about, uh, Sam Raimi producing or executive producing a uh, hard target and how he was there to like basically put handcuffs on woo and be like, slow him down. And he and, became he, his advocate. And he was just like, uh, this guy, they were all already huge fans. I mean, obviously like Raimi and Wu have a lot of similarities as filmmakers. And he was like, no, give this guy what he wants. And I think, I still think hard Target's probably his craziest movie he's made in Hollywood. Um, uh, I don't know, man. He this had,
0: movie goes to a high tech But the budget prison was so much. Joe up. Bob Briggs like provides like shock therapy to fuck people up. N- this uh, you're, This you're, movie feels like nine movies in one. That was another thing I noted watching this this
1: time. Again, when you're younger, you're just like, oh, this is a perfect movie. I don't want to even critique it. It becomes fucking Christopher Lambert's Fortress.
0: Yeah, like, out of for, nowhere. For like for 40 minutes.
1: minutes. <laughs> but you know what? I was watching it and I was like. Yes. absolutely fucking lutely yes. So he's was two hours and 15 fucking minutes long, I think, right? And, and I was like, you could have cut... Honestly, like, you were texting me, like, the plot holes are plentiful in this, but who gives a shit? But, like, the fact that, like, they allowed Pollux to be sent to the Supermax prison and just didn't keep him
0: in custody and let Sean walk in and be like, hey, I'm po- <laughs> I'm Gaster, Well, one of the great moments in the entire film is during the jailbreak sequence when fucking Caster Troy, or Sean Archer, as Caster Troy, stages this entire riot, kills everybody, breaks out, and then gets to the top of an oil rig, and Wu does this massive, like, sweeping pull out crane shot of him realizing he's on an oil rig in the middle of like the whatever ocean that this supermax prison is stationed in. And it's like, Noo! and that's when I'm just sitting there like nobody else does it better, baby. Like this is the, the Coke zero of films. <laughs> well, then it's like, again, but plot hole where it's like, he just decided, well, I'll just jump off and swim. Yeah, he does all those things. Well, it, and also th- the the plot hole of like, where are we? Like, what prison is this? What planet are we even on? It's like you know, Planet woo, I guess. I also love you have John Carroll Lynch as like the evil warden, and we haven't even gotten to the casting of the bit parts in this movie yet.
1: It, I mean, again, you said you know you have our uh, Joe Bob Briggs, um, you have John Carroll Lynch, Thomas Jane,
0: Margaret Cho. Chris Bauer. Chris Bauer. Alessandro Navola. And honestly, the 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 role that I, I saw, remember man. him most from. Yeah. Like when he showed that up June in bug. the Yeah, that's another good one, but I when he showed up in but basically playing uh Dicky Moltisanti in yeah. the, the many Saints of Newark, the the Sopranos prequel, my brain instantly went when I read the casting news, huh? Pollux Troy? Weird. This
1: again is a foundational movie, I mean, obviously for both of uh, us. Yeah, that most things, most people in this movie will be the person. Like for me, Margaret Cho is always her role in this movie before she became a comedian. In my
0: mind, but well, I, she's already a comedian, but I didn't know her at that point. It took me the longest time to reconcile that the guy from Face Off, Nick Cassavetes, who gives Castor Troy drugs. Is the guy who directed the Notebook and also John Cassavetti's son? Yes. Like when I realized that, it was another like galaxy brain moment of like, Brr, what's going on here, man? The world is gigantic and fucked up. The,
1: I mean, to put it I guess plainly, I can't believe this movie exists even in 1997. It really shouldn't. I and I think we're all blessed um, <laughs> that it was made. Because I watched it, I was like, "This movie's like was about as big a budget as it could be at that point. They threw a lot of fucking
0: money at you, two of the biggest movie stars at that point. It's Paramount. It's Paramount coming off of like Mission Impossible, which was one of the you're biggest right. movies in the world. The year, yeah, you're right. The year after, um, and it's just, I do it's think gold. that like De Palma doing uh, Mission Impossible and making a giant uh, tentpole movie that made all that money, like." I think that did open the door for Wu to do this because I do think that they were looking at different auteurs and being like, okay, how can we replicate that formula to one degree or another? Well, and then have him do Mission Impossible 2. Exactly. And then Wu comes in and does Mission Impossible 2. Then Abrams comes in and does 3 and fucks that whole theory up. But whatever. Like, do you like Mission Impossible 2? How do you feel about that movie? I mean, what do you think?
1: I, yeah, I adore okay. it. Yeah, well, I saw I knew that movie. Friends
0: for a reason.
1: I saw the movie five times in the theater, dude.
0: I I was close. Yeah. I was.
1: That was another movie because I was still my my woo fandom was was probably even higher by the time that came out because I just kept seeking out more stuff. I remember seeing it opening night, the next night, the next night. I'm a fucking sophomore in high school. It's May. I had the days count, and then it came out November 7th on DVD 2000. I had the days on my calendar counted to go to On Cue. I had it pre ordered. And I watched that DVD every fucking night of the week after it came out. And I actually watched it. I fucking love Mission Impossible 2. I love that entire fucking series. Three is the worst, but um, I think that people write off two because, like, oh, it's the weird, kind of crazy one. I said, no, that's when they were just giving it to auteurs, you know, he was kind of getting out with bringing in him for a face off. What could we do here? You know, De Palma and then bring him. And then, like you said, and, you know, Abrams, was the, the most um, pastiche of all filmmakers.
0: How do you feel about Joan Allen in this movie? So
1: I watched Manhunter after this. And for the longest time, Joan Allen was Eve Archer there's another film person who's just like forever will be Eve Archer. Um, if I had one gripe for the movie, I would have made Eve a sexier person. I don't find her that attractive. Um, she's very momish. uh, fair. And so I've always, I was even now, even then when I was younger, I was like, I don't get it. The whole, like you're sitting with my wife and she's also kind of saddled
0: with being the naggy wife.
1: The whole time, and also like I was watching it this time, and I also feel horrible for her fucking character, where she or he comes to her and basically convinces her is like, "Hey, I'm actually Sean Archer, uh, Nicholas Cage," and she's basically having to admit, "I've been fucking another guy. He's been in my house for a week. Who's the guy who killed my fucking child?" Like she has it worse, I think, than Sean Archer does in terms of the shit that happens to her. Oh, what because of the situation. You know, so I feel horrible for her, but as a casting,
0: uh, I just never really saw it. Is that fair? Sure. I will go back and say that to your point about like being young and seeing this movie and thinking it was real deep, the scene where he goes and sees her at the medical office and talks about their first date and the midnight dentistry and stuff. Like as a kid, I was like, this is the most romantic thing ever, and now you watch it watching, you're like, this is super corny, like moment of melodrama that just totally works because Wu is like, just sell it. Like, there's no irony here. Like, this is the emotion of the movie. Yeah, watching that, again, watching the, the killer today um, reminds me
1: a lot of the stuff between um, be, be, between John and Jenny as the two leads. So all, with her going blind and just this heavy melodrama of he goes into her apartment the first time after he saves her from being mugged after she's been blinded. And like sees a picture of her on a bicycle and the music just rises and he's realizing this life that he's stolen from her. And again, when I was young, I thought that was deep, but it moves me deeply now. It actually really does. Like it's, I know it's on the nose, but it really gets to me.
0: Well, and it's also like we watched bullet in the head on my birthday oh my last God. year and you have all the, I'm a believer, like kind of montages and stuff like that was just woo stock and trade is that that's how he represented characters is like the most arch, melodramatic way that you can convey that information because that was the type of movie that he was really into. Like he loved Audrey Hepburn musicals and he loved Sam Peckinpah films. Like that was the guy that he, and he took that and amalgamated it into his own style, like while working on like Wuxia films and then like movies for Golden Harvest and shit. I mean, I just... Again, I have I think I don't think I've watched Face Off in 10
1: years. I really don't think I have. And I feel horrible about that. Um and because it was such a part of my life and and not to be cheesy, but I feel this really great sense of connection with my younger self watching this now because it's oh, not sure. a film like, cuz I I I had forgotten how much I remembered if that. You know what I mean? Like I I was watching I was like, "Oh my god, I know every line of this movie still. I remember little moments that I used to think were weird." when I was like fucking 13 years old, 25 fucking years ago. And I'm still noticing those and remembering the feeling I had.
0: Um, I don't know. It was a really great reconnecting for me in a weird way. It reminds me a lot of the fly David Cronin mm. in terms of how, like when I saw him, uh, introduce the movie at beyond fest, he talked about how like opera was a lot on his mind and like how he wanted to make the the fly into like, the genetic splicing opera. <laughs> and like you watch it with that in your head and Howard Shore's like gigantic Ugh. booming score. And like then you watch face off and you go, he's doing kind of the same thing. He's that he's applying the, the operatics to action movie filmmaking. Like it's all about like hitting the highest note that you possibly can and deli- like using that note to deliver the emotion straight to your audience's heart. he He's so good at that. I think also hard
1: boiled everything with Tony Leung, you know, of, of the moment where he's um, on the, the front of his boat and he's just like crumpling up the origami because he makes an origami for every person he kills. And it's like, again, I know it's like very broad and, and operatic and and melodramatic, but man, it just hits me every fucking time and and better. Don't get me started on a better tomorrow. I mean, that's like one of his most like soap opery, you know, or two. Oh man, seriously. I mean, of course you got chatting with a soap soap opera actor, you know, who, who knows how to bring that, but, Man, I, we both love Wu. I mean, what's more to say?
0: What do you think about Con Air now?
1: Oof. First of all, there's about an hour of no action in this movie. I mean... Wait, what? The beginning feels, it's like, there aren't action scenes. It's them taking the plane and a lot of dialogue The last 45 minutes are fucking great, but I feel like it takes a long time to get there. In terms of action, I mean like shootouts, chase scenes, anything physical. The plot happens, but there's not, there aren't action scenes. I was kind of surprised actually that it takes a long time to get to real action scenes.
0: Here was the thing that I realized watching Con Air this time around is that I always considered Die Hard 2 the ultimate like Irwin Allen film for mm, like yeah. canon heads yeah. like guys who grew up like watching like Golden Globus and just really loving Delta Force and shit like that yeah. like Die Hard 2 is like what if we took the Poseidon Adventure and like melded it with canon movies this is that like this might be even more than Armageddon the closest that Bruckheimer not Bruckheimer and Simpson because he was dead at this point but like Jerry Bruckheimer came to replicating that formula of it because it was like here's a gigantic ensemble cast here's a a massive movie star at the center it's a high concept premise that's all like replicates like the disaster movie formula the entire time and then it just kind of lets it rip so when even action scenes aren't happening it feels like action because you just have like a bunch of movie stars shouting lines at each other and like honestly I will again push back a little bit here because I feel like this almost abides by the Roger Corman rule of like something has to happen every 10 minutes I feel like there's a hijacking or a fight or a plane crash or a machine gun battle or something ridiculous being done by like uh, Nick Cage in one of both his most iconic and maybe worst performances at the same time, which is a weird thing to say. Uh, it, it just is delivering everything that you want and that, or I should like more broadly say, that an audience wants from this type of movie. It was like, how can we take Michael Bay and like almost like strain out all the auteurism? Yeah, you know, and it's, I
1: see what you're saying. And I enjoy, I mean, I enjoyed watching it and I really loved uh, rewatching uh, John Malkovich as Cyrus, the virus. Like he's having a great fucking time. Just killing, just it. killing it. Ving Rhames, Bashemi's whole thing is great. Um, Nick Chinlund. I like too. I've always liked him as an actor, Danny uh, Trejo in Danny...
0: a character that would never be in a movie these days. Nope. Nope. Um, but also Cusack and fucking Cole Meany in like the biggest, like heel turn of all time. Like just, there's nothing redeemable about that guy. You just want to hate him throughout the entire movie, but you
1: still get the nice moment at the end where it's like, I need a new car anyway. You know, it, it reminds. It's funny because it has a very, obviously, a very similar setup to Broken Arrow, where you have instead of uh, John Cusack, you have Frank Whaley, you know, as the the brainy one that no one's really listening to, and it's like, no, you got to listen to me. Like, let me help out here. I, I will stick. I will stick to my guns, though. That in terms of like when I think action scenes, I think action scenes. I see what you're saying about it having a propulsive narrative of like. Things are changing. There's there's value changes to quote Robert McKee, you know, in in the plot. I think, though, of like when you hold this up against the rock, right, where you I've always thought one of the most interesting scenes in that movie is the car chase, because it's such a product of we need an action scene. You could cut that completely out plot wise and nothing would change. I mean, he could
0: escape in some other way, whatever. But the producers wanted to right? because wasn't that the scene when they were shooting it in San Francisco that like they got up in arms about and Sean Connery had to go like defend Michael Bay. And well, I did the know producers? That. There's an infamous legend now that like the rock was running kind of over schedule over budget. Yeah. They had just shot this huge car chase and like everybody at touchstone and Disney and stuff was like, what, what are we doing? Like what the fuck is happening here? And they called Michael Bay up to a summit meeting, which more or less felt like you can get fired. almost like you're going to get fired. And Sean Connery, who was dressed to play golf, like just saw him and was like, where are you going, old boy? And Michael Bay was like, oh, I got to go meet with the producers. So he's like, oh, let me go with you. And the way, according to Michael Bay, of course, the way that it went is that Sean Connery rode with him, met with the producers, still dressed to go play golf that day, and was like, it's fine. Everything's going great. Michael Bay's doing a great job. This is amazing. You're cool. And then they just got to make the movie they wanted to make. Whether or not that's 100% true or not, or just like either apocryphal or embellished, whole other discussion, but it is a legend that hangs over that movie. Is that like Michael Bay got to inject his autourism into it. And even you could argue Sean Connery kind of birthed Michael Bay autourism in a weird way.
1: I love that. I didn't know that story, but I mean, I do, I think of that scene again, in relation to Con Air, where it's a full on, just like side scene of just like, we have a, let's get a 10 minute action scene here because it's going to be a couple that 20 more minutes before we get to the rock you know, then it's the break in and I feel like Conair, there's a good 40 minutes to me where it is like the kind of ins and outs like they do. They do stop the plane and they're doing the fake out with the FP or they fake out with the people say, hey, no, we're actually the the guards. We're not the convicts, all that. All that aside, though, the last 45 minutes, it does feel very Bay because I feel like the um, I, I love this like broken down old. Um, desert airport that also has like fix-it shops. It feels like something from one of his Transformer movies. You know, these these Americana old diners, old, you know, old garages. And it's kind of just this like American Norman Rockwell (laughs) myth paintings (laughs) as far as I can see with kind of crazy action spliced in.
0: Well, that and it's coming from like Simon West, who's one of the ultimate like jobbers of all time. Like he's trying to replicate that style while making like a movie that's going to please all audience. Like this is the very definition of what they call a four quadrant (laughs) (laughs) same thing. Because not only like is it trying to replicate like Michael Bay and The Rock. And it has Nick Cage, who's now become like this massive like action star who has two action movies. I looked it up like Face Off came out on June 2nd and this came out on June 19th to give you an idea. Yeah, that's crazy town. So like you have him. But at the same time, you're also there. He's almost leaning into like the serial killer craze that came out after seven to where like you have Steve Buscemi's character, yeah. you have all, like Cyrus the virus, and it's it's really like kind of playing on the fascination yeah. that we had on like the John Does and the Hannibal Lecters that dominated like nineties pulp fiction at the time. So it, it's going as broad as humanly possible. Now at Very the same comic time, booky too exactly, yeah. and it it has an. A, an Academy Award winning song. Mm -hmm. Trisha Yearwood. Yeah, with Trisha Yearwood's How Do I Live Without You? But it also ends with, to be fair, a massive plane crash on the Las Vegas Strip, which is just as ridiculous as anything in Face Off. I'm not in any way saying that this movie is as good as Face Off. It's not. The people who try to have this argument and contend that are in fucking sane. But it does contain elements, I'd say.
1: No, I really, uh, this is one, though, that like I saw, I don't think I saw it in the theater, for real. I I mean, I I saw it in the theater, and I liked it. It did not stick with me, obviously. Um, You know, I've watched Face Off, like you said, 40 times as well. The Rock, 40 times easily. The movies did not stick with me. I see why now, watching it. Um, it feels somewhat
0: disposable, comparatively speaking. Well, it's a TBS classic. It's the movie that was designed to be replayed on basic cable time and time again, which, again, to one degree, I admire because I've seen this movie so many times, and most of them have been like, oh, the Bulls are done playing today, and now Con Air's on. I'm not going to change the channel. And like it is one of the most rewatchable films of all time because of all the movie star power it has behind it. So
1: I will I will retract my statement of not having seen this since the theater because yes, when I've been in hotels, and yeah, it's ultimate
0: on, like airplane movie.
1: This movie though too, no
0: pun intended.
1: You can come in at any point. I have never watched this from the beginning since the theater, but I have been in hotels for work or whatever on trips, and you could come in whenever you are like, oh, I know where I am at. Like you could just start any time in this movie and not feel lost, even if you haven't seen it in ten fucking years. It is the ultimate playing in the background movie. You know, I can step in and I get my feet, my sea legs under me pretty quickly, narrative wise.
0: I do think, though, again, that if you pay attention to it, it is still pretty entertaining.
1: No, I would agree. I I really had fun watching it. Um, I did try to watch Air Force One, um, and I didn't finish it. Cause I was thinking 97
0: it's a slog. I mean, really? it's, it's, I mean, I it, remember loving that movie. I have not revisited it in years. It, I mean, Wolfgang Peterson fucking kicks ass. So like it is very well directed.
1: Like it is propulsive filmmaking. Like it is like the way it's shot is gorgeous from a script point of view. It's just like the idea is also not just ridiculous, but just kind of boring where it's like, okay, cool. The president is now John McClane. On this plane. But you'd never seen that before. Well, it was interesting because it felt like their way around of not doing the Jack Ryan stories where he became president. Oh, sure. He's just yeah. playing Jack Ryan. Like, they're just, they're just, it's a Jack Ryan movie. It felt like to me. Like, was it executive decision? His, the, the, not the movie, but the book. Um, Or executive. Is where he becomes president. Well, because
0: there's Debt of Honor. Yes. Which is the, the one that. He just straight up predicts nine eleven with the Japanese businessman yes. and like the, the terrorist attack that he pulls off with the planes and everything, like eerily so. Yeah, executive decision. No, no, no. Executive decision. That's the Steven Seagal movie. Well, I'm saying there's the movie. There's also a book, Executive Something, which is Tom
1: Clancy. Yeah.
0: We're just but about that's him. the one where he becomes president because yeah. everybody else is dead. They <laughs> die in the fucking terrorist attack. Yeah. And then Jack Ryan ascends. Because I think he's the secretary of state. It was like, yeah. It was, something. I haven't read the book since I was like 18.
1: It was like a Keith Sutherland show. It was like next in line or whatever. Yeah. Or the yeah, idea yeah. of like if he was like agricultural secretary, but everyone was dead. So he just like all of a sudden was president overnight. Executive Orders Uh, is what it's called.
0: Got you. So you're in the ballpark. Yeah. Now, let's briefly touch on one other movie that came out in 1997 that we watched together because you have, kind of like you were saying, is that you have Face Off, Con Air, Air Force One. Men in Black. Men in Black. I wasn't, I was just going pure action, but sure, Men in Black in there too, but we watched one together that was a DTV movie from the same summer that I think kicks maybe more ass than both of the... Well, not more than face-off, but it, it's on the same level. Drive with Mark deCascos, a Kadim Hardison. And you had never seen this until the other night. What did you think? I, man, this was this was a delight. Um, it was last night. And um,
1: I've always liked Mark deCascos. I've liked him since... Stairway to Heaven, The the Crow Show. And I love Brotherhood of the Wolf. And sadly, I haven't watched a lot of his movies, his other solo stuff. And I've seen him whenever he shows up and shit like John Wick 3. And I've always liked him, but he's so good in this. And we were both talking how... (laughs) You and I were like completely in kismet watching this movie. We kept having the same thought at the same time. We're like, oh, this is like proto-DTV Rush Hour. Yeah, 100%. Because like Mark DeCascos is kind of playing an Asian guy, but he's he's playing the dumb white guy at the same time. And Kadeem Hardison's more like supposed to be like, I'm into rap music. I'm more cool. And it's these like,
0: and to is doing what, like his martial arts clown thing. A lot of it, like there's a whole karaoke scene in this where he gets to just totally ham it up. But I think you were, you were about to dip into the real well here is that this has one of the great, sexy ass Brittany Murphy like <sighs> performances of all time. Where I would machi. marry this girl and just never let her see another man in my life because I just, I'm so in love with her.
1: You said the line last, we were both also another thing we were in Kismet on was like, so this movie is basically everyone wants to fuck Kadeem Hardison. Like every scene is, and he's a good looking guy. Again, he's very charming, but he's, he'll just be showing up he'll walk into a bar and some nasty ass way. She's just like giving him the eye. Brittany Murphy is just all over him from frame fucking one. The second he walks into her hotel and he's just like, "Mm," he's like, don't let her come with us. I'm like, what are you? It's a whole subplot
0: to where he's beating her off with a stick. And I'm like, are you insane? Like, I don't care how fucking crazy she is. She's the love of my life. Go fuck yourself.
1: She's awesome in this. It's that we were both talking like this at a certain time could have been in the theaters, you know, um, should have been, it should have been the
0: action sequences are as close to like a pure Hong Kong production that anyone's pulled off. Like Steve Wang, the guy who made the Guyver movies and then also works on like power Rangers, yeah. and a bunch of like creature stuff. Like he was a special effects guy, but he was also clearly into Hong Kong cinema between this and the Guyver films. Like the Guyver films are just like smaller, like scale Kaiju films. In that he's like, what if just a bunch of men in suit just beat the shit out of each other in alleyways?
1: Well, you were, we were talking last night how we were like, man, this looks like black math, like a Sue Hark film. You know, like every, even the angles, like you could be like, take this and be like, is this a Sue Hark or someone else? But like, this is a Sue Hark movie, like through and through. It also, um, you you made the point of it has like an Albert Piyun feel of, you know, no goddamn budget. You know, they're shooting where they can. I mean, I think that gives it a lot of charm. You know, there's like, get, what, 30, 40 minutes to take place at a roadside motel. Um, and you think that, it's a
0: set, and then you realize, oh no, they're just wrecking, and then blow up with, the, with blow the missile up. Launcher, a missile launcher of real hotel. It
1: it has that sense of like, oh, this feels a little bit unsafe, like they're, they're not sets. Um, and DeCasco is, just, is a fucking trooper in this, like he is working out and he, and he, you know, for the, for the plot, he plays this kind of super soldier. He's got a, a um, a cybernetic heart that can allow him to go almost, almost universal soldier style, you know, harder, faster, longer. And, you know, that was very sexual. I apologize. Um, but he is a, is a badass of martial arts too. So he does these like comic booky like leaps through the air that are absolutely insane. Um, but it's straight a, up looks like wire work. And there is some wire work that we were watching the credits, but that just felt like him on a trampoline,
0: <laughs> just kind of spearing himself and jumping out of the frame. He's so athletic in this. It's oh, amazing. It's, it's embarrassing. Like he's, he's great. So now do you want to get to our big bonus for everybody listening, which is the unbearable weight of massive talent? We're going to actually go deep. Nick cage here. Love to. All right, let's jump to it.
2: Me, tender. Love me, sweet.
0: We're back with 1997's Face Off, which actually we were going to morph into a Nick Cage episode. Probably unsurprisingly, I'd say. Yeah. Because we came up with this, I don't even know how we came up with this idea, but we were talking about a summer of 97 episode, a 25th anniversary thing. And then this movie came out The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent uh, with Nick Cage playing Nick Cage in a movie where he gets to go be recruited by the CIA to infiltrate the cartel? Uh, Yeah, arms cartel. Like, it's almost like his being John Malkovich, but done on a Lionsgate, like, DTV action level. Honestly, I like this movie a good deal, but I also think it's completely fluff. How did you feel about it? The exact same.
1: Um, I went with a friend, and we it was a really fun Friday night movie. This is the kind of movie you were like, we're going to go to the movies and just like watch something. It, it was just, it felt very disposable to me. Um, if anything, I'm surprised by how unzany it was, you know, for me, Nick Cage is this, like we've, you know, he's this lightning in a bottle personality and the energy he brings. And you think of like probably my favorite Nick Cage role is Wild well, at heart, That are adaptation in terms of just performance and like a filmmaker understanding what what he can do, and I think like a filmmaker like you know Spike Jones like knows how to use him, and David Lynch definitely fucking knows how to use him. This one, I know from reading the history of how it was made, and the screenwriter kind of like put it together and said, "Oh, let's see if he says yes." You know, it's pretty thin even as a screenplay. Um, and like you said, like I was just watching the whole time and it, it felt cheap. The CG was cheap. Um, it, it, it promised a lot and didn't deliver close to what it did, what it, what it promised. Again, I had a good time. Like it was fun to hang on Nick Cage and like, he's great. Like he's, he delivers every scene,
0: but there's just not a lot there. I think we also kind of agreed that maybe the CG being cheap was sort of a comment unto itself. Yeah, and I like that. all of yeah. the DTV kind of action weird things that he showed up in, like USS Indianapolis Men of Honor. Like, why is Nicolas Cage in this movie? Or like Rage... Or any of the the revenge type Bronson things that he was doing for left, left behind, game. left behind. Oh yeah, shit. His version that of that it's horrible. It's really bad. Um, but like all of the primal. The, the I like that movie. I do too. Where but he's yeah. the the big game hunter on the ship hunting the giant CGI tiger. It's a, which it's a good horrible. high concept. Yeah, but like. I don't know, it, it felt like a comment on those movies too without being too overt about it because some of the best jokes in the movie are like, I really like Captain Corelli's mandolin. Like, I lost my shit. That that one's underrated, you know? And then, or even like, John Woo is a maestro. Like, like there's just, there's some great self-reflexive things that are going on in this movie, but I also worried about it being the meme movie. To yeah. where I remember when Mandy came out. Yes. And do you remember uh, the writer who sadly passed, uh, Mike McBeardo McPadden, who works for like right? Mister Skin. Yeah, a couple years ago. I he, didn't know that. He, he sadly died. I loved his uh, work. Yeah, but he wrote uh, the the heavy metal movies book, and he he
1: did the um the teen sex comedies. I right? met him. He's a super
0: he was a super, super cool nice guy. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah great yeah, he, writer. Yeah, he I believe died of heart failure. Uh, two years ago, Um, uh, I met him at sin apocalypse. Um, but he wrote a review of Mandy where he hated it. And I completely disagreed with the review itself because I love Mandy. I think it's an absolute masterpiece, but he called it more meme than movie Hmm. And at the same time, while I disagreed with it, I also understood where he was coming from. And it was the thing that I even voiced my concern about before going into this movie with you, is that like I was worried about it being about Nick Cage the meme rather than Nick Cage the actor and never considered the fact that it could actually be about both at the same time, which I think it does to both its detriment and positive
1: attributes, let's say. That's a really good point. You brought up Mandy, though, too, and I I remember seeing that in the theater and saying, like, here's a filmmaker also who gets Nick Cage, you know, because has got Nick Cage, knew where he was, knew what he brought, knew how to use him in the world. The the film wouldn't work with anybody else but Nick Cage. I felt very similarly about Color Out of Space um, or another film, you know, from Spectre Vision where they're like, we have Nick Cage here, we're gonna use him to do what he does best, but also surround him by a pretty crazy and fun like genre plot. If anything, I think where this falls flat is all it is is just that. Is just the Nick Cage side of things, who I love, but without a compelling movie around it. Like I thought like the genre stuff was Pretty fucking bland. I love Pedro Pascal in this, and I'm actually not always a big fan of his. He's really entertaining in this, and and super sweet. Like he's he's cute. Like he's cute. His whole like sycophantic love for Nick Cage is is great. Like it, it's
0: very authentic. I said it to Carrie after we watched it. Is that I was like Pedro Pascal is the best special effect this movie has. Like he enters and just. You kind of just glide on his charisma and enthusiasm the entire time. Like he really sells it. Like that Paddington two joke oh. that happens in the middle of it should not work at all, and it's because he delivers it that you're like, all right, this this is pretty funny actually.
1: Yeah, no, he. If anything, it's kind of a lot of it's his movie because like he's the one driving the plot in a lot of a lot of parts. And what I wanted from this movie, if I had to change one thing, I would have made it super fucking gory. I would have made it.
0: Yeah, I was surprised by how like soft R it is.
1: Yeah, and, and even for like cussing and boobs, like it, I thought that would you had a fun. We were mentioning before we recorded like JCVD, which still leans into like some fun, crazy action shit while kind of critiquing it. And I wanted more of that. I think of like a you know MacGruber level of gore of like throat rips and things like that. And there's moments at the end where it does the kind of Michael Bay low angle shot of him, um, but not enough for me. And again, it's not distinctive enough to stand out where the whole thing feels again, kind of bland um, filmmaking wise.
0: When you kind of wonder if it was hamstrung by like the budget itself to where which wasn't high. No, it wasn't high. And also like all the scenes where like old Nick cage talks to young Nick cage from like wild at heart and stuff are sort of dire. They're kind of like the true, the worst versions of the true romance, like Elvis scenes (laughs) is what I kept thinking about is that it was like, what if Nick cage had his own Elvis, but it sucked.
1: You mentioned the meme thing, right? And another way to put that for me is a film that it feels like you're not allowed not to like, um, when I say meme, it's this kind of thing of like, we're all on the same page. Nick Cage is great. He's funny. So we've already decided before it came out, we're going to love this movie. You know what I mean? And this felt kind of like that to me, um, where there was a consensus ahead of time of like, oh, Nick Cage is playing himself. I'm in a hundred percent, no matter what he does. I felt a little bit at watching it in the theater of people. Like there was a guy in front of me, forced laughing the whole fucking time, which was already obnoxious in its own right. But I felt a little bit of that, I was like I wanted more from this. I just wanted more from the movie. I think it could have been a really like you mentioned being John Malkovich earlier. I think it's a great film. Like because it it goes past the the conceit of the movie and becomes something really special. It's the fucking title, you know, being John Malkovich and this felt like oh, this is all you got. That's kind of how I felt leaving the theater.
0: Yeah, that and the fact that like It doesn't do a ton with its premise. No. Like you think it could go for, then it hints at it early on. as like, he's an alcoholic. He has a strained relationship with his daughter. He's Kate Beckinsale's kid. Yeah. Kate Beckinsale's kid. And like, also like he has his money problems, which kind of, you know, let's say is supposed to allude to Nick Cage's real life tax problems. Um, But yeah, it it never, I don't know, addresses those or uses that in any meaningful way that actually engages you with the material, which is kind of a bummer.
1: Yeah, I mean, it has this very kind of schmaltzy ending. And people are like, oh no, I didn't think I would be so emotional watching this movie. I was like crying. I was like, I didn't. Like I felt, I mean, I I didn't have a bad time. I really enjoyed watching it, but I kind of felt outside the whole thing the whole time. I, I just couldn't get, completely engaged in what was going on. And, and it is going to sound super douchey, but it's like, I've, I never lost faith in Nick cage. Kind of like I never did with Keanu. Well, like, they
0: even uh, address that in the movie to where it's like, not that I ever left was what they keep repeating.
1: But it feels like a lot of people are now like, Oh, I like Nick cage. Now I was like, dude, I've always, and I, I genuinely like him. I don't like him being a meme, you know, like I fucking saw drive angry open. I saw, I thought I saw season of the witch. I Friday at a six PM screen, the first screen. Like I've, I've been one of his biggest fans forever. I'm not trying to say I like the band before it was cool, but it it feels a little bit disingenuous this movie to me.
0: It feels interesting too, coming directly after the year where everybody felt like he was snubbed horribly for Pig. Yeah, to where like you have one of his greatest performances in one of the movies. He's even publicly said because he doesn't do weirdly enough for a. a star of his magnitude let's say he doesn't do a ton of press mm-hmm. like he avoids a lot of it and there's always speculation to like does he avoid it because he doesn't want to talk about his money issues or his idiosyncrasies or the memes or whatever or like and just yeah. focus on the acting itself because like it is 100 true that like he is a workman like he yeah. puts out two three four films a year sometimes. And, like, because it just seems like he just loves acting. Like, he doesn't know how to do anything else. But watching this movie the year after Pig, which was, like, an incredible film that I even remember telling you and Cody early on that I saw... And I was like, oh, this is a new Nick Cage thing. And you guys kind of looked at me like, okay, cool. And then it came out later, and you were like, have you seen Pig? And I was like, I told you about this movie fucking that months Sony, ago. That was Cody, not me. <laughs> but like, <laughs> the, like, this was a thing that I knew was going to happen like early on, and then it did. And now we get this movie, which is like his meme movie. And it just feels like sort of sad in an ironic way. It has elements
1: of like a Ryan Reynolds movie to me of which we bring up time and time again on this podcast of He's the devil. Yeah, and he sucks. But like it's that kind of knowing wink at the audience kind of filmmaking. And it's like, don't you love us? Isn't this funny? You should think it's funny because everyone else thinks it's funny. You know, the comic consensus is this is funny. I I also think like I I just I wish this movie went weirder. I'm just surprised by how strangely chased the whole thing was, you know, I I expected like crazy nudity and like David Lynch esque, like mind bending shit. Cause in a weird way, I've like melded together, like the, the best of cage with like David Lynch kind of world building and just like dream States. Sure. And I wanted more of that. And this was just like, like even the way it was shot, it was just like super fucking bland. Um,
0: Almost, like, TV-ish at times.
1: Yeah, and not not good TV-ish. Just, like,
0: fucking NCIS kind of TV-ish. I do think this movie's going to have a huge audience when it actually hits streaming, I think though. you're right, yeah. Like, I think it's going to have a long lifespan and people are going to discuss it for, like, a while because it does at least engage with the idea of Nick Cage the actor versus Nick Cage the meme. I hmm. think it does take that not necessarily to court, but it has the balls to be like, yeah, do at least acknowledge both. Let's say. Yeah. But I mean, it's still worth checking out. So you should definitely see it. And
1: we're both still huge Nick cage fans and I want to support him in anything he does. So like, and he's, he's great. In it. like, he has I just, I think the film around it should have done more. I think they kind of dropped the ball in a few places.
0: Real quick, not to put you on the spot, but I will. Top three Nick Cage performances, go.
1: Number one, Wild at Heart, forever. Um, Number two, I said before, Adaptation is my number two. Number three is The Rock.
0: And now you must answer. It's true. Um, I'd go with Adaptation, Mandy... Maybe Bad Lieutenant, port call New Orleans. I was going to, once I finished, I
1: realized that was one I forgot. That's another filmmaker, Herzog, who gets. He understands what Cage brings and who's also a wild man in his own right as a filmmaker who lined up. I would put it up. You have Spike Jones, you have David Lynch, and then Herzog all just clicking in with what, is putting out and kind of knowing how to use him correctly
0: man i might be wrong though because wild at heart there's also fucking uh valley girl which i think he's great in i like
1: moonstruck a lot
0: moonstruck is like one of those great iconic movies that probably shouldn't work but does
1: the script's a mess but it's just it's kind it's of wonderful incredible
0: yeah um and all of his action movie put like output that we've been talking about this episode is is iconic for a reason so i mean nick cage you know what if you're out there you're listening to this and we know you are like let's face it you've heard every episode of secret handshake just know that we love you yes and we will be talking about you much more in the future but next week we're getting real weird with it you're just gonna have to stay tuned and see what we got all right see you then bye
3: If I had to live without you What kind of